You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at home and abroad, and we're at Godrich Celtic Roots Festival, and I have the pleasure of sitting across from Joe Jenks, and it's my first time to meet Joe, Joe and it's a real pleasure, first of all, Joe, to meet you. And I've heard some of your work as you were performing, and um, close to bringing tears to my eyes, um, not because it was a Kamalia, as you might be familiar with the Kamalias, but because of the storyline and the way you told the stories. And that very much as you explained on stage is because even though you are an American, you're Irish. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, it has been an interesting journey for me, uh, both personally and artistically, uh, to understand what it means to claim both identities. Um, when I first started traveling in Ireland, the first thing I realized is that I'm an American. It does not matter what a passport says. You know, like, you know, uh, I have to learn what a modern Ireland is about because the Ireland I'm familiar with is the one that my granddad left in 1914. Right. Because those are the stories that are told us. And interestingly enough, my, my first visit, I, I started out in Dublin and realized, okay, Ireland has changed a lot in the last hundred years since since granddad left. Um, but then I got into the Gale talk. Yeah. And I got into to the west and I got into other parts of Ireland and I began to see the people who were cutting turf for a living and that's what my granddad did every summer when he was a schoolboy. He'd go out and you know uh, do odd jobs in cutting turf or helping people on their farms or what have you um, and I started to meet uh, native Irish speakers and my, my granddad's family were all native speakers right. and once he came to the states um, they all started speaking English and I think none of them spoke Irish anymore. Uh, not really much even with each other, but up to that point they were all Irish and English speakers uh, based in a tie in County Kildare. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is a bit of a, a sign of resistance to maintain the Irish language. Uh, I think it was 17... 1730s or so that, that the British set up a garrison there and kind of made it a colonial town at that point um, and they had already been there for generations at that point and they just rolled with it uh, but they kept their language they, they spoke yeah, both and I think that was one of the things that is so phenomenal about the Irish story is that I know uh, I read and heard that you know, one of the first things colonizers do is endeavor to get you to speak their language and lose your own. And the Irish said, no, no, niha, Tommy J. Katskelga, I guess, and managed to maintain the language. Now, unfortunately, nothing like it would, it would have been. But you talk in terms of what you experienced when you went and how it was your perception based on your grandfather. We emigrated in 1988, and when I now go back, Ireland is a different place than I left in 1980. Oh, yeah, the Celtic Tiger was transformative. I mean, yeah. that, that phase of the Irish economy was transformative. And joining the EU, um, so many of my uh, politically progressive Irish friends, to a one, all say uh, the best thing that Ireland did in a modern context was become a part of the EU. Yeah. It solved so many problems for Ireland. It allowed them to stand as a sovereign equal among nations. Uh, it opened doors for trade and commerce that lifted so many people up economically. And it helped solve some of the problems of the Troubles. There was an economic solution right. to not all of the problems, no. but 
but many of them, once everybody had access to the resources that they needed, food, education, jobs, health care, you know, because it's a sort of, you know, a requirement of being part of the EU, the, the free flow of labor, free flow of capital, you know, um, and, and, you know, it was just, it was interesting, and it's also been interesting for me as somebody who grew up sort of romanticizing what it meant to be Irish, yeah. to recognize that Ireland also has its contemporary social challenges. Uh, there's extraordinary racism in parts of Ireland toward the travelers and traveler communities. Uh, there's still, surprisingly, uh, a fair amount of racism uh, toward people of color in different yes. parts of Ireland and other languages being spoken there. And in the way in the United States that some people, you know, they know that we need immigrant labor for agriculture, for the service sector, for restaurants and hotels. There's a little bit of a, a resentment there. And I was surprised in 2007, my first visit there, to see the dichotomy of the number of Eastern Europeans, Polish and Ukrainian and Romanian people that were part of the EU and were working in Ireland, uh, supporting the tourism industry, doing the jobs that other people really didn't want to do. Yeah. And then uh, people would speak so disparagingly of them. And I thought, don't you get that yeah. like, I, they're supporting your economy rather than harming it? You know? There was a wonderful conference in um, Dingle. You may be familiar with other voices. You know. I've heard of it, yeah. Yes. And I think it was about two or three years ago, one of the topics was this subject. And they talked about the 17%. And the 17% was the 17% of Irish born who had emigrated. And the 17% of the Irish population who were immigrants. And how Ireland was coping with both. Uh, because one of the things politically you will hear all the time is how one group of politicians will argue how another group of politicians have failed the Irish by not providing jobs for them. And yet, there is a, a dichotomy, as you say, because there's a requirement. And we need immigrants in order to sustain an economy. But um, yeah, it's, I was surprised to see that that absolute parallel relationship between Ireland and the United States in this way, where there's 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 this sort of uneasy détente with the economic truth. But I was walking through Dublin and I wanted to go to Kilmainham Jail. Right. Um, I had given a concert at the Unitarian Church off St Stephen's Green in Dublin, uh, and I did another little concert there. And I just I was just so hungry to understand history written by the Irish. Not Irish history written by other people, but Irish history written by the Irish. And, uh, I, I think people don't understand that, that this is a relatively modern thing. For so many years, Irish history was written by other people. Some Irish history. Was. Some Irish history. The Irish history that made it into textbooks in the United States. But the other Irish history is a history that you'd be very familiar with, which is the history in song. Yes, yes. And, Absolutely. And I remember being at a conference and it was fantastic by a, a professor from Maynooth University, uh, Miriam Moffat, called Supers and Jumpers. <laughs> and the supers were those who went to the soup kitchen, but in order to go to, to the soup kitchen they had to convert. And then when they had food in their belly and they were okay, they went back, but there were jumpers when they went back. And in doing so, she also talked about oral history and how the Irish history successfully translated because it was in song. And we'll talk about that because you, you're very familiar with Skipperine. Yeah. And even the song Skipperine itself, that is an old story yeah. of Skipperine. Whereas the other version of history was written. 
and the order has been had a stronger influence. Yeah, and and it still does. And interestingly enough, um, there are still places where the oral history has its own bias, and it's not entirely accurate to what happened. So, uh, at least from my perspective, uh, having the privilege of standing on the shoulders of generations that came before me, I get to look back and go, all right, well, we need both. We walk by pedal on the written history and the oral tradition. They're both an integral part of an understanding of identity itself. But I was going to, um, I was walking to Kilmainham Jail because I just, I wanted to go there. Um, I wanted to, they have not just the, the story of the 1916 uprising and the history of certain revolutions. There's also a wing of the museum that's just basically a global civil rights museum. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's things about Mohandas Gandhi and Martin Luther King and, you know, the history of many forms of societal transformation. But I stopped a man on the street and said, how do I get there? And he said, you'll have to, you really should get a cab because uh, I said, well, I can see on my map if I just walk. He said, you don't want to walk through there. That's a Russian neighborhood. It's a very dangerous place to be. You don't want to walk through a Russian neighborhood. And I thought to myself, I live in Chicago. I'll decide for myself what's a dangerous yeah, neighborhood. Yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. So I walked through and there were all these women and they were speaking Russian and some speaking Polish and they were out hanging their laundry on the line and they were turning their front yards into subsistence gardens, yeah, yeah, which is I'm yeah. sure what my granddad's family would have done a hundred years yeah, earlier. Yeah. You know, and I would wave and they'd wave back and I'd smile and they'd smile back. I met not a single soul that was in any way unkind to me. And I thought it was so interesting that this man's perception was that the Russians were all mean and terrible people. I have found as somebody who travels for a living, if you bring a smile and a kind welcome to strangers, they'll usually greet you the same way. (laughs) You know, and I found this all over Ireland. You know, I was going to ask you, in your route to Kilmenham Jail, you didn't go through Kilmenham Gardens someday. I did. I did and eventually go through that, which is stunning. Story. I have still to go through the art museum that's yes. there. But, yeah. Yes, because that was a veterans hospital back 250, 300 years ago, mm. which was phenomenal that, mm. that, that a veterans hospital was established at that point in time. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. So I just, it really has been my joy to explore Ireland in a modern context and then find my own voice as a dual citizen writing about Ireland, where I'm not trying to be a writer that's pretending that I grew up there, that I have that understanding of Ireland, but I'm also not as much an outsider as many people are, and it's been a beautiful and I think a healing journey for me, personally, um, to reclaim some of what my granddad left behind with immense gratitude that he made a point in the oral tradition of preserving that, and that he's very proud, and uh, a friend and colleague of mine, Luca Bloom, talks about, you know, that he's very proud when he travels to show people his passport, mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. it has, uh, it is, it is a passport that is of Ireland, of a sovereign nation that says he is a citizen of Ireland rather than a subject of another crown and it has the Irish language in it and he said it's just as a statement of cultural sovereignty it, it, it brings immense pride to him not in a not in a like nationalistic we're better than you are kind of way mm-hmm. but he said the privilege of living in this era in Ireland and being a, uh, an Irish citizen is one of recognizing the immensity of hardship that centuries of people have overcome to arrive at this part of the 21st century where Ireland is a thriving 
beautiful, rich, cultural uh, place, and strong enough now that it can welcome cultures from other parts of the world while still holding on to its own identity. I've always believed as well, you see, Ireland, unlike England or the north of Ireland, never went through the industrial age. So Ireland went from being an agricultural economy to a knowledge-based economy and being highly educated it fitted right in without having, and that it wasn't effectively then prevented from moving forward because well we're going to have to modernize equipment which is expensive it didn't have that weight around its neck uh, and I think that was and of course the Irish as you would know the real freedom for the Irish came when free education was granted yeah. That was the yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's an amazing story, um, and I, I I am so often at odds with my own government, uh, or at least certain factions of my own government in the states, um, that I don't very often have moments of feeling genuinely patriotic. And I remember that first trip to Ireland 15 years ago, um, going to where my granddad grew up. Like, you know, the the Dominicans built the first mission church there in 1280. You know, like, I mean, in North America, there, there are, I mean, there are some places of indigenous heritage, the First Nations, the Native American, um, that date back to that time mm-hmm. and evidence of that. There's no modern structures mm-hmm. that date back the better part of a thousand years, mm-hmm. you know, and to travel through Ireland, and I, I kept referring to things as ancient, mm-hmm. you know, and my friend Tom would say, no, Joseph, that's not ancient, that's old. Yeah. It's, it's the pagan times that are referred to as ancient, you know, and he'd take me to a stone circle that was 5,000 years old. It'd take me to Paul Lebron. You know, and you you see this and you go, oh, okay, now I understand. You know, to those of us in North America, anything that's like, you know, before 1700 is kind of like extraordinarily long ago. And in some cases, 1700 means 5 o'clock yesterday evening. Well, yeah, for some people, they're still holding (laughs) grudges about things that happened in 1700, you know. (laughs) But no, and again, like my time when I was living in Dublin, I used to walk every day from up near where Vicker Street is now, down past Christchurch, and into the bank of what was uh, the original Parliament building. I worked in the bank, and that was our cafeteria. And here I'm walking past this cathedral that's over a thousand years old, and it's just that's there. It's just there. Yeah, yeah. There's. I have a friend in Cologne, Germany, um, uh, and we met in Ireland. Interestingly enough, I met her and her husband in Ireland, uh, and she sent me a picture during the pandemic of her with her face mask on uh, in front of the cathedral in Cologne, the, the big cathedral. Um, and there's scaffolding all over it. And I, I asked her I, in an email, I asked her about the scaffolding, and she said, well, they say in Cologne that when the cathedral is finished, it will mark the end of the world. <laughs> like it's, that's, a bit, it's, it's, that's a bit like the one, the Uffizi is within in Barcelona. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly, La Sagrada Familia. Yeah, 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 no, yeah. It, and it just cracked me up because I knew exactly yeah. what she meant. Yeah. You know, like, like it's just, you know, yes, it's been here for a thousand years, and no, it's still not finished. You know. <laughs> Let's talk Skibbereen. Absolutely, because Skibbereen had a, a real impact on you. It has. Uh, I mean, part of it, I have to own, was a little bit um, sort of retroactive guilt. Like, how is it that my family fared through the great hunger 
well enough. And, you know, 1.3 million people died in Ireland of the two plus million that immigrated. There's no real records to know how many of them survived the journey, how many of them made it to where they were going. Um, and so I really started to dig into the, the history of Angortamar um, to really understand what what the complex social and political and educational components of this were uh, to arrive at an understanding that it is the same throughout history. Um, it's less about religion or theology. Uh, it's about class. Mm-hmm. It's about people who have money and people who don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and people preserving privilege and fear of losing privilege, mm-hmm. so an unwillingness to be generous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember my mom saying when I was a kid, you know, that that, that uh, a, a famine or a blight is a natural occurrence. Mm-hmm. But when people are starving, it's a political problem. Mm-hmm. It means there's a lack of will to get food from places where people have it to the people mm-hmm. who need it. Uh, and this resonates deeply with me in the United States. There's such an issue of poverty and hunger in the United States. States right now. Uh, one in four children in the United States, a land of such profound abundance, one in four children is radically undernourished. Mm-hmm. Um, it's disturbing to me. Uh, we have some of the same lack of political will to solve our problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been to visit with Terry at the Skibbereen Heritage Center, and she has one of the most well researched, most scholarly exhibits in Ireland. Uh, and several scholars have worked on it. It's very well researched. And she gets into the history of the great hunger and the circumstances of the fact that there were so many estates that were growing and farms that were growing food uh, that was bound entirely for export to parts of the Commonwealth and that the ethnic Irish, the tenant farmers uh, were forbidden by law to consume the food that they were growing Mm -hmm. for export. They were left with a little bit maybe a yard bird that was laying a few eggs but of course you wouldn't eat the yard bird because you need the eggs, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, And uh, it was hard for me to imagine the laws that would have existed at the time where you couldn't just get a permit and go hunt a deer if you were hungry mm-hmm. or go to a stream and fish if you mm-hmm. were hungry that you would be sentenced uh, uh, you know, for poaching and for mm-hmm. some people the sentence would be death for killing a deer in someone uh, else's uh, estate after Australia, Tasmania, after Australia, Tasmania you know, yeah. um, it, it, there's a song on my album Poets called The Lady Juliana uh, that's about the first prison ship that went to Australia uh, carrying women as cargo and right. a set of laws that were written about that and some of them would have been Irish women as well yeah. Yeah. Um, you know so there's just this really complex history that many people try to reduce and say well it's the Catholics and the Protestants look what the Protestants did to us Wolf Tone was a Protestant Napertandy was a Protestant I mean so many revolutions were yeah. led by people that were Protestant that were part and parcel with the ethnic Irish they were themselves ethnic Irish um, and they believed in an independent and free Ireland mm-hmm. and they laid down their lives for it, you know, so I contrary to some of the popular narrative even still sometimes I find myself trying to remind people this is not about religion, it's not about theology it's about the same struggles everywhere in the world, it's the people who have inordinate amounts of money and resource, unwilling to solve the problems Mm -hmm. of the world that are solvable, Mm -hmm. there are things we can't fix, we can't fix a global pandemic, we can mitigate it, but Mm -hmm. we can't fix Mm -hmm. it, we don't know when the next disease is going to emerge, and we're going to need to work together to solve these problems. So everything that we can solve together, I believe we have a moral and ethical obligation to do so because we will bump up against things that have no solution. I know when we came to Canada first, my 
one of my relatives is uh, Native, uh, French Canadian, and um, I made a comment to her like that the north of Ireland was no different than the Holy Land, was no different than was no different than what was going on in any other part of the world, and was no different than what was going on basically in Quebec. And the response I got was, oh no, no, that's not true. I said, yes, it is, because really, I said, all that it is, is it's a failure of one group of people to legitimately recognize or acknowledge the legitimacy of somebody else's point of view. And I also believe very deeply that if someone has nothing to lose, they have nothing to lose. Yeah. So yeah. If, if, if someone is in poverty with nothing to lose, they may as well be in jail. They may as well commit crime. They may as well do whatever. I, I, I see this lose. in the States. I, I walked into a post. I lived in Cleveland for a while. I've lived in Seattle. I've lived in Chicago. I've lived all over, but I was raised in outside of Chicago. But when I was living in Cleveland, I walked into the post office one afternoon, and there was a homeless man in there who reeked of urine, and he was making a row in the post office. And I, I, I you know, the, the postmaster was picking up the phone to call the police. And I said, hold the call. There's got to be another solution besides putting this man in jail. Yeah. And he said, oh, he comes in here all the time. He just wants us to call the police so he'll have a bed and a meal for yeah. a few days. Yeah. You know, which is exactly what you're speaking to. Yeah. And I, I, I talked with the man, and he was a mess, but I laid a tarp down in my front seat, and I made some phone calls to various homeless shelters, yeah. and, and I found him a bed, and I found him a place to go that wouldn't put him in prison. And I just thought, what an immense failure, the system, that this guy's best option is to make a row in the post office yeah. so that he can go to prison, have three square and a bed for a week. Um, and with our climate here, it would not be beyond reality that come November that someone may commit a crime that will get them six months. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, yeah. Uh, the, I think I like writing about Ireland um, in part because as a songwriter, um, it, it is my voice, and the reason mm-hmm. I'm such a melodic writer is because of all the beautiful melodies that my mother was singing to me as mm-hmm. a child. Mm-hmm. The songs that she was singing to me that were part of the oral tradition that you speak of. So I, I, I was already kind of formed in the shape of an Irishman before I had ever been there. But it, it's been a beautiful process as an artist, as a songwriter, um, to find my own voice as a musician that incorporates all of these traditions into my own authentic voice. Uh, and I, I really look to the work of Luca Bloom as one of the artists that's given me tacit permission to write in my own voice because there's a reason that he changed his name to a stage name as much as he respects his brother's career, mm-hmm. Christy Moore, like mm-hmm. one of the great bards, one of the great mm-hmm. troubadours of Ireland, and uh, somebody who holds and carries the traditions. He wanted to walk his own path, mm-hmm. which is very much as an Irishman, but writing modern music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not just music about Ireland, not just in the way back times, you know, but like really a modern voice for a modern Ireland. And did, I did love you, his work. Did Luca bring you uh, swimming? No. Because he goes sweet, see swimming down on the hinge. Uh, I'll, I'll make him do that next time I'm <laughs> over there. But uh, he was kind enough to uh, uh, invite me to record City of Chicago, which it's which beautiful. holds uh, a lot of meaning for me because Indeed. that's where my granddad ended Indeed. up. And I, I, the first time I met him, I played a song of mine called Lady of the Harbor yeah. that I wrote about immigration. And he said, oh, let me sing you a song about that from the other side. And right. um, you've been to Galway because you wrote a beautiful yeah, song around Galway's love. Um, 
and a lovely scene. I'm from County Galway, so uh, I always have a soft spot for anyone who falls in I love, love Galway. Such a beautiful city. And, I mean, talk about a multicultural European city. I mean, you know, a Spanish fort that was built there. Uh, I mean, a full-on, not just a fort like, you know, the sticks and bundles. I mean, like, you know, like, I mean, for people who don't know the history of Galway, um, you know, a Spanish colonial city uh, at one point. But at that place in Spanish history, if they could um, engage in commerce, there was no need to engage in conquering. You know, they would just set up a, a point of commerce and freely connect. So the, the Spanish presence in Ireland at that time, as I understand it, was not as an occupying force so much as just this is going to be our home base here right. so that we can engage in trade and commerce. Um, and there's so many layers of history in that part of Ireland. The canal system there is stunning. Like mm-hmm. I, I've walked the canal system through Galway and, um, you know, uh, like a couple of centuries before anybody was thinking about digging canals in North America, they had a really phenomenal system That's there. Right. Yeah. Um, and you feel all of these layers of history, like you were talking about in Dublin, a thousand-year-old cathedral. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's a beautiful city. I'd love to live there. I fell in love with a mill loft that's been turned into condos uh, right along the river there. Uh, and I've always fancied a notion that if that ever came up for sale, I'd love to see if I could finagle buying it. Right, right. I was over there in 2019, and it was up for sale, and I met with the realtor. Uh, and it was going for 670,000 euro. And I was like, well, that's how to reach for a folk singer. Right. <laughs> That's right. You know, That's but, right. But it's it's a marvelous city, and I love I love the whole of like that part of Galway, north, uh, you know, up into Connemara and up oh, into oh, County Mayo oh, yeah. and on up. Beautiful. It's just beautiful country. And you mentioned that you know the, what you write about, what you sing about, is relevant today, and it has a political message. And we live in a world of tremendous toxicity in social media, particularly. I can only imagine that if you stick your head above the power pad at all that you're a target. Well, this is part of why I communicate through narrative. I find that if I tell a story and tell it well, that it softens people's hearts because rather than seeing you as other, like that man that I met in Dublin that saw the Russian immigrants as mm-hmm, other, mm-hmm. Um, if I sing a song for you that fully humanizes those people and makes you see their humanity, how can you treat them less than a neighbor? if you fully see them. So whether I'm talking about, you know, uh, Central American and Mexican immigrants coming across the border to help us with our agricultural trades uh, in the States, or whether I'm talking about a steel worker whose mill has shut down, or singing about the great hunger, or, um, you know, singing about fishermen, or what, what have you. Um, if I can sufficiently write the song in a way that opens somebody's heart to seeing the full nature of another person's humanity, that, that too is a very activist choice but it's less about bludgeoning you for doing mm-hmm. a thing or not doing a thing and it's more about giving you the open hand with the palm up and inviting you into a conversation mm-hmm. and this is the power of music is that it gets past the gatekeepers in the left brain the very linear logical side of us that hold all of our sort of orthodoxy you know you sing a song for somebody that moves them and they find themselves humming it a few days later mm-hmm. and then they find themselves singing it's a few of the words and then they go well, where is Skibbery? Mm-hmm. 
why am I singing this melody about Skibbereen? What's that mm-hmm. about? And they go to Wikipedia and they look it up and they have an aha moment where they mm-hmm. connect some, some of the dots in history or they, they keep hearing me sing this song about steel workers in Mansfield, Ohio and they they look up well, what's in Mansfield, Ohio and then they, they find out, out some history that that makes another person fully dimensional and I sing to issues of racism in the States as well um, and I sing some of the, the old hymns that became civil rights anthems and sometimes I'll tell stories about it and sometimes I won't but I want a lot of different voices to be present in one of my concerts um, because I, I feel like I have not done my job if I stand on stage and sing only about myself or for myself uh, a microphone is a privilege and I always feel like I have an obligation to lift up the stories of many people into our consciousness so I sidestep that that you know sometimes I sing songs that will get me a good whack from somebody um, as you say stick your head above the parapet you know <laughs> um, and I do that in a very calculated way at times I wrote very cautiously during uh, the Trump presidency um, but when I really had something to say I was not afraid to say it mm-hmm. but I, I feel like the best way to harm a narcissist is to deny them attention so mm-hmm. I devoted very little effort to singing about that administration because I felt like I'm only throwing gasoline on the fire. Mm-hmm. Even if it's critical attention, it's still attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I-, I wanted to starve that fire. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to just die out. Uh, and Pete Seeger taught me something. I was privileged to be friends with Pete Seeger, an amazing uh, musician and activist who sang... Um, he gets tagged as a protest singer. Uh, but the truth of the matter is he spent more of his life singing about what he believed in rather than what he was against. Mm-hmm. Because he figured out what I have come to understand which is it is exhausting to constantly be in opposition Mm -hmm. if you can rather sing about a world emergent Mm -hmm. about a more hopeful and a more healed and more connected world suddenly people start to believe it's possible and from that place of hopefulness people will do far more good in the world than from a place of anger and frustration so I feel like the power of music is the ability to get people past whatever place of offense or struggle or harm or hurt that they're dealing with and invite them into a space where they begin to connect again with hopefulness. And from that point of hopefulness, so much more is possible. Yeah, we're going to have to wrap up, I'm afraid, because um, we, do, we do have a time. And we're going, I, I'm going to share your composition on Skip Rain with the listener because it is powerful and definitely worth listening to and uh, it's been a real privilege meeting you and thank you so much pleasure and thanks for keeping this amazing music and these stories on the air